there is a reason why an extremely low percentage of institutional money holds gold. You hear gold bugs bemoan this all the time. It's like the bane of their existence. Like no one owns the gold yet. The opportunity is still so big. It's like, well, they've had a long time. They've had 5,000 years if they wanted it. <laughs> you know? They've had 5,000 years to buy this stuff. Like clearly they don't actually want it that much. And the reason why is this mental hurdle about yields, in my opinion, at least. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you're a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. Today you got me and Miles O'Neill. Miles. Good to be back. Good to be back. Good to be back, buddy. Good to be back. Yeah. Um, This is going to be a fun one. It's been, we're making the executive decision to not talk about the Bitcoin ETFs because I, you know, I don't know how much more alpha there is to be analyzing these weekly flow numbers. Although shout out to Eric Balkunas and James Seifert, who are basically the oracles of this. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen someone brand themselves this appropriately in quite a while. So I did see, I did see Bitwise posted their addresses. So you know the crypto native etf you can you can track i i will just constantly root for bitwise because one of the things that people don't see is they got they've got the nicest just best team in crypto if you've met their leadership team hunter matt teddy it's really just an example of the good guys winning and this is just the latest example oh did you see miles someone donated uh 69,069 sats to to the address and so now the joke is that bitwise is the only over collateralized bitcoin etf that's funny i could totally see um you know the crypto community just kind of cheering on the the more crypto native provider especially with such a likable team (laughs) let's just send them a bunch of aum uh just for fun but that's funny that's i could see people if i honestly i would even send them a, a tip too if i could figure out lightning but that's uh that that would be a whole that'd be a whole project to to get that figured out so also while we're shouting out shout out udi and eric at wall for fighting the good fight on i'm i'm very excited to see some of this change that's coming on bitcoin blockchain with ordinals and l2s and it actually feels like there's some real innovation going on in there for the first time in a while it does we should do another episode on like just bitcoin uh you know what's what's new over there uh because i do do feel like there's a lot going on between bitvm and and a lot of zk l2s and you never know. Um, maybe, maybe the time is now to finally get, you know, these, this community, uh, off the sidelines. It's kind of like that thing where, oh, I've been hurt before. And I was a little bit slow to believe this, but from what I hear, you know, they're, um, even at like SBC or, and Columbia, um, you know, blockchain event that happened a little while ago, Bitcoin had a very large representation for the first time in a little while. So we That's love good, to see that. Good to yeah. see. Good to see. If we have time, we should, I think an interesting question to unpack as well, because it's even relevant for ETH rollups is, you know, what, what are the extent, to what extent is the performance of drive chains or whatever limited by the performance of the L1? And I, I think that would actually be a really interesting question. We probably have to get some experts on here who have a more granular understanding of what the limitations of drive chains really are. But I don't know. I think that would be cool to, cool to look into. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I got to give it but one one quick thing before we get into today's topic. Uh, thank you, Wormhole, for sponsoring this. You can mint an NFT, which is specific to Bell Curve. Now, there's a joint competition right now going on between me and Jason over at Empire, and he got slightly more mints than me. So please help your boy win and uh, go, go mint this bad boy. Um, 
we'd appreciate it. So, all right, Miles, um, what I want to get into, it's been sort of a slow news week. We don't want to talk about the Bitcoin ETF. I thought we could have a little bit of a, of a higher level discussion. And this was inspired by this next season that I'm doing with Hart Lambert, it's my co-host on the multi-chain endgame. And basically what that is, is just trying to update my mental model on how multi-chain is going to play out with, I haven't really thought about this very deeply for a little while. There are kind of pockets that I end up focusing on, shared security, chain abstraction, et cetera. But I kind of wanted to try to knit it all into one thing. And what I wanted to, there was this great, so Chris Goes is going to be the first guest of the season, which I'm super pumped for. And I, I read this paragraph in a, in a blog that he put out on this intent-centric topology that he's been really excited about. And um, it, it sort of made me think. I think it's very relevant um, for, for us. And I thought we could riff on this, uh, particularly into how it pertains to Ethereum uh, and one of the challenges that they're looking at today, or opportunities, depending on how you frame it. But you know, at the end of this blog post, it talks about the uh, heterogeneous security between multiple different chains and the end of supply-side blockchain economics. And you know, he's, again, this is within the, a lar- the context of a larger blog post about, and we'll link it in the show notes as well, about um, intents versus transactions. And the idea being in a transaction paradigm, a lot of what generated value or the way that people thought about the economics of blockchains was very supply side oriented. And this is something we've actually talked about on the show before. I, I think a lot of the investment cases, I mean, it's the 21 million hard cap of Bitcoin, right? And these are inherently supply side arguments for setting a clearing price for value. But the idea is that intense because that puts the choice. I mean, you're you're not mandating one specific output. So it's much more of a demand-centric argument based on what users want. You're flipping that paradigm. Um, and one of the the second order consequences of that is that you're kind of unbundling the parts of a blockchain that had been bundled previously. And the way that Chris defines that is there's a protocol. So this could be like the EVM, which supports smart contracts, a specific security model. So that'd be Gasper, the validator set, and Ethereum, a history. So that includes the nominal asset, which would be ETH, and then a community of people who ident- self-identify as members. And so one of the, the interesting things, I, I think an interesting meta question to ask is let's just take two of those parts, which is the protocol. So let's just say Ethereum itself as the protocol or the EVM, and then the asset ETH. And what, let's try to think through on this episode, what are some of the second and third or second and third order consequences of those things being unbundled. And I feel like where, where this is starting to even rear its head is, you know, the moneyness of ETH conversation. And I, I think you're starting to see a couple of camps of people align with different parts of what had previously been bundled together. And you see, let's call it like protocol maximalists. Um, and these are usually app developers on Ethereum that want to see the actual protocol itself improve. So the the two things that these people tend to ask for are shorter block times and, um, and uh, cheaper gas, right? So raise the gas limit. And that would be uh, the a sort of a protocol-centric view of the world of ETH. And then there's another group of folks who I think are very attuned to the asset ETH itself and its moneyness. And what I'd love to unpack this episode is, A, how do you view the sort of dichotomy of these two points of view? And how are we just viewing the overall moneyness of, of ETH, especially in a world where we probably want ETH to be used as money on other chains. And so inherently, it's going to be wrapped there. So so what do you think about that, Miles? Is that a fair way to characterize kind of like a protocol-centric approach versus an asset-centric approach? And what are your sort of high-level thoughts on the moneyness argument of, of ETH? Yeah, I think it's... Um, so first of all, it's like a super interesting argument in terms of thinking about intents this way and, and their implications on, say, broader um, you know blockchain dynamics. Um, I do think, you know, each, like, I think you have to be kind of specific about what chain or what ecosystem we're talking about. Um, and, and with Ethereum, I think it's, you know, we've talked about it, right? It's kind of in an awkward spot in its roadmap where it is starting to push activity out of the platform. It's not trying to optimize for, you know, the, I would say, application uh, activity on its protocol, uh, yet 
there is still a ton of of applications. It's still the center of of really all uh, blockchain activity, right? Even though trying to push things up to rollups at this point. And so I think that that is, you know, you could argue that maybe with this roadmap, the main, you know, demand side driver of, of, of Ethereum is no longer trying to attract apps directly to L1, but trying to basically export its asset, its moneyness to be, you know, the main, uh, I would say, base asset of all these protocols built on top of it. Um, either that are in, inheriting security via being a rollup or inheriting security, um, you know, via something like Eigenlayer, right? That's completely, uh, you know, a, a totally separate network, but but connected through, I guess, the supply side of operators and and staked capital. Um, and then there's, yeah, I think a different question here of, you know, if that is your goal, right, to export ETH the the asset and have that serve as the base layer of of trust and um and really the base money of all these ecosystems then how do you think about the stake rate right um i think the original v1 you know yield curve um was built and and kind of you know for for the merge right which is still still in place um the I guess logic driving that was before there was even a ton of DeFi activity, right? On L1, the logic was, you know, it didn't incorporate things like MEV. It didn't incorporate, you know, I guess the incentives to stake and then mint a liquid derivative of your of that stake. And so, you know, I think the original target um, with the with the current curve is somewhere between ten and thirty percent max. Um, and we're already at 25% and we see that the, you know, the majority or at least a, a large portion of stake uh, is, you know, accessing this via LSTs and LSTs, as we know, have very, very strong power laws. And so, you know, obviously we've already to see, begun to see one dominant LST. And so I can see, you know, from the perspective of, of Ethereum, just some general kind of concerns that, you know, a, a, a big refactoring needs to be done in order to kind of align, uh, I would say, the roadmap of ETH, the asset, and what that looks like to, I guess, the roadmap of ETH, the protocol, um, and really what they're hoping to do by having L1 serve as more of a, a settlement layer um, and just, you know, maybe a place where you can export security, right? Uh and that's not the way things are going right now. It's looking like, you know, the stake rate's going to go very, very high uh, to keep all those assets liquid. It's, you know, likely going to be, um, you know, uh, derivatives will be minted from it. Um, we'll see exactly, you know, what portion of ETH holders, I guess, would, you know, at this point have no interest in staking. I think there is kind of a, an assumption that, you know, we're going to hit 50% and then it's going to go 75%, 80%, all the way to 100 I think there's still kind of a big question right now of, you know, huge pools of capital that just say, eh, 3 4% for all this smart contract risk. Like, what's this, geth, you know, geth client risk thing? Um, just learning about that now and that's not, you know, going to help, right? So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of thoughts there. But um, I, I think we are at kind of like a, a pivotal um, turning point in deciding, you know, how to realign the the supply side economics to the roadmap and the realities of, of ETH. Okay, so much to unpack there. So let's let's divide this moneyness topic into kind of the stake rate and this stake derivatives, right, from main chain. So that would be what is the appropriate kind of stake rate from the perspective of Ethereum, the protocol. And then what is, uh, you know, how do, how how should we think about the competing moneyness of something like Steeth versus ETH? And then I think a, another interesting meta question to ask would be if the idea of, if the objective overall from the perspective of Ethereum is to export ETH as a currency, then what that implies is that most of ETH is eventually going to be a wrapped version in one way, shape, or form. Even something that uses like the bridge up to Arbitrum ends up being not canonical ETH. And you know, we were we were talking about this, and we'll give you some analysis. It's it's just a shame actually that 
the Venn diagram of people that have a deep understanding of global monetary plumbing in TradFi and crypto is so small because there are some extremely similar principles and tensions. Like for instance, the US is the issuer of the reserve currency of the world. You know, we take our currency and US dollars are an export and there is a tension in between, you know, you want that currency to be strong and trusted so that people want it. But if it's too strong, then it actually hurts domestic voters because we can't export stuff. So there's a constant tension. Um, and it's anyway, there's a lot of I, I think you're starting to see that pop up in ETH as well. But let's talk about this from the perspective of let's just zoom in on the issue of the stake rate and, you know, have the existence of a derivative like Steeth. I think one of the one of the difficult questions is you know, how do you trade off? Here are the trade offs from the perspective, at least that I see it. One is the idea of would you rather have money or yield bearing money? And I think what you would learn if you again looked at TradFi is that people would prefer to hold bonds over currency. People with money, people with a large amount of assets would prefer to own yield bearing money as opposed to non yield bearing money. With the, with the extremely important caveat that the security assumptions are the same. And actually within TradFi, the security assumptions of holding bonds or holding assets in a money market fund are actually stronger than holding USD in a bank. So as you got to assume that the security assumptions are relatively similar or or ideally even better. But and then there's the the idea of kind of the issuance policy and what the the target stake rate should be. And it might be interesting Miles just as a as a thought experiment. You know, what would you think about obviously there are many different flavors of how you could implement something that looks like a cap, right? Let, let's just say, for instance, you know, the Ethereum community or the relevant set of stakeholders said, we'd like to favor ETH the asset. And we are going to implement some version of a cap at like 50%, right? Just picking a number out of thin air. I mean, how would that, can we kind of play play out some of the second and third order consequences? Like, do you think, do you think the result of that would be fewer people staking? Would that push people actually into more risk-taking via eigenlayer, opting into additional sources of yield? I mean, how, how do you see all that? How would you see that playing out? Yeah, um, it's super interesting. So I'd, I'd say like in maybe taking a step back, why why would we even like talk about something like this? And I do think it's, you know, driven by, okay, we're no, it's no longer going to be the global computer on L1. It is going to be this base layer of trust, a settlement layer that exports its security and its money. Right. Okay. So we, in that sense, if that's our main, you know, basically value accrual method and our main product, we want to maintain a premium on, right. We want control first of all, and we want a premium on liquid ETH um, because the reality is yield bearing ETH um, that can be used, you know, in a liquid fashion is not have, you know, one-to-one trust and risk assumptions, right? Like, treasuries do to to like non-yield bearing cash right um and so it's saying okay that's not really an option uh or we don't want that outcome because of the implications of you know something like lido controlling the validator set right so let's actually uh put a, a target on what we want the stake rate you know to be that's a little bit more um prescriptive than the original uh than the original i guess curve and so you know what it could look like is again yeah you you pick a target that's maybe sub 50% or 50% um and just you know have the yield curve you know not fixed but go uh to zero right um as you get to that number and potentially let it go negative um once it goes past that number and then it's a question of okay should that just be negative for like you know the new balances that just entered or should that be negative for everybody so that it's more of like a collective pain right um and then you know that has some interesting implications around like okay how do you exactly do that do you just reduce balances right and then i think you take into account um next question is actually we can control issuance the two other you know variables that play into this yield, the absolute yield number are MEV and and now eigenlayer that's emerging, right? And so sure we can target a stake rate of X through issuance. Um, 
but if let's say MEV represents, you know, two to 3% and Eigenlayer, you know, represents anywhere from maybe 1% yield uplift, if you're really conservative to, you know, three to four, maybe 5% yield uplift for, you know, the more degen like risk on capital. Um, now we're still looking at a staking, you know, uh, effective staking yield of, of somewhere in between, you know, like I guess three and like six or 7%, right? And so should the protocol be aware of that as well? I think that's also something to, to think about um, because it, sure it can go like issuance can go kind of to zero and to negative, right? But you're, you know, you're not really, uh, you could potentially have well over that target, right? Um, if the rewards offsetting the negative yield are high enough. Um, so these are like the different considerations that go into that. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of like pause there. So totally agree with all of that here. Here's where I see this going. And I'm curious to, I'm curious to understand if you also see the world this way, because let's imagine there is, let, let's imagine some sort of scheme that you just described where issuance tails off at, at some predetermined target. And what you're, what you're doing from the from the perspective of the protocol is lowering the amount of yield that gets paid out. And then there are these other separate market forces where where yield is going to trend lower over time anyway. So for instance, MEV burned to me is kind of pointless as a discussion. People like to talk about it, but there are other market incentives which are redirecting yield away from the proposer. Just did, I mean Hart just came out with this thing oval which is attacking one pool of MEV, which is uh, Oracle-related MEV. This is happening on the level of DEXs, so sex-to-dex arbitrage that ends up happening. That's getting redirected back towards the app layer. There are incentives actually both from the perspective of Ethereum consensus and the dApps that are built on Ethereum to redirect that MEV away, so these market forces anyway. So the stake rate is getting lower and compressing. And I would just love to know what the the objective of that is because if you look at how traditional monetary policy is conducted when you lower the yield you are encouraging people to take risk because the yield the desire for yield especially passive risk free real yield is essentially infinite it's infinite so when you lower the risk free yield which i think people would consider it's not risk free it's silly to suggest that but the safest yield you can get in crypto is most likely you know ethereum staking yield if that goes lower i don't think people will just say oh i can't get the same amount of yield that i was getting before people will have already been anchored to that target and all you're going to do is push them out along the risk curve into riskier and riskier sources of yield and the easiest way to do that probably or looking like the dominant vehicle for that is going to be a combination of eigenlayer and liquid restaking. And ironically, I think if Ethereum were to go down this road, they're surrendering control of their monetary policy in a sense to a marketplace like eigenlayer, where eigenlayer can adjust parameters uh, and and have an influence over on the, the liquid restaking uh, protocols that are built on top of it to control the amount of yield that global investors are getting. I, I, that's, the road, that's the road that I, that I see us going down here if we, were to, if we were to take this path. Yeah. So you're saying that it's, uh, I guess the downside is that you're basically um, putting a lot of, I guess, control or giving a lot of control to something like the dynamics of Eigenlayer um, once you hit that 0%. Right, and in assuming and assuming it's just going to stay there, right? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that the amount of you know security spend generated from Eigenlayer, like it, it's going to take quite a while um, for that to be significant. Um, and so, and and I I guess I just don't see a you know a huge world where there's like. 10% rewards, you know, coming from Eigenlayer for mm -hmm. until there's thousands and thousands of AVSs if they, if they get there. Um, so I, I do think that maybe it's like a, a bit overestimated right now based off of, especially how many deposits are in Eigenlayer. Um, 
just the timeline until that becomes, you know, as, as big of a factor as say something like, you know, MEV today, just in, in gross dollars. Um, well, could I poke at that though? Right now, but we're, we're not really in a great market regime for that. I mean, couldn't you imagine during another bull market? I mean, there's going to be, I would imagine an enormous amount of demand or something like this, tons of new chains. I think so, but there's, I think that is actual spend, right? That is, uh, needs to come from somewhere. And there is, uh, you know, billions and like, I think there will be probably $5 billion of deposits by the time it launches. Anyways, I, I think over time, yeah, it, it does become extremely significant, but just to miles, just to underscore that important point, again, revisiting some episodes that you and I have done, the value proposition from the perspective of an AVS is right now they dilute them. So they have to pay an enormous amount in their native token to procure security or a validator set. The whole value proposition of eigenlayer and rehab propagating ETH security is that you pay less, right? So it's not that I keep doing this mental, I keep doing this math and I have to keep reminding myself that I'm wrong about this. It's not the amount of emissions that these combined new chains would, would, uh, would issue on, you know, all else yes, equal. Yes, they're, yes. They're, they're expecting to get a massive discount, right? So they should only be paying whatever that, whatever that is, uh, you yeah. know, much, much less. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's funny because like eigenlayer depositors are, you know, they're there for extra yield uh, and the AVSs are there to give away less yield than they other, you know, otherwise would. But um, just I, I do think that's that's going to come in for a while. And you do have the, you know, I guess if maybe the one concern there is that if you push it really negative, then, you know, that pushes incentives from the restaking side to basically, you know, take on a lot more risk than they otherwise should. And then, you know, by, I guess, solving one problem by having a ton of liquid ETH out there, maybe you end up with a bigger problem of, you know, overloading Ethereum's consensus or <laughs> basically the original concerns around Eigenlayer, which I think, you know, is has a lot of training wheels for, for all of these reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I do think it's actually very realistic to see like uh, a 0% target at some point. Um, just because I think people will basically bid at 0% to, you know, process or, or work on the consensus protocol, because there is going to be that much, you know, that many ways to profit off of just being a proposer. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about a lot of stuff coming down the line on, on the MEV side yet. Um, and I think, you know, as well as the eigenlayer side. So I don't, think you know the protocol necessarily needs to be like incredibly aware of of all these like out of protocol you know profitability drivers like like mev necessarily um to still have this you know be kind of like an effective you know target stake rate um that goes slightly negative you know af after it hey everyone wanted to give a quick shout out to the wormhole foundation if you are a bell curve listener you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain i certainly do i complain about it on this program all the time that's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the wormhole foundation the stewards of the wormhole protocol the wormhole protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes including solana sui ethereum layer twos and more and the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve nfts which you can get and mint for free you can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link all right guys on with the show one more question on this before we get to, you know, the other question of what does exported ETH ultimately end up looking like? What what do we think? Let's let's ignore what what other people think. What do you and I think Ethereum the protocol should be optimizing for? And is there a tension in between the parameters around ETH block space or like the Ethereum protocol that makes ETH the export more money like? versus making the protocol itself more usable is that is that actually a tension that exists and so yeah it's, it's it's interesting um it is a tension i really do think it is um and and maybe a way one way to think about this is to co like compare this to i think of uh, uh celestia right now and and tia which you can argue is like um basically saying it started at the point of where okay, we want to build where Ethereum wants to go, right? As this base layer and its main product is exporting Tia, right? Um, and you can see right now that it is like 
actually going a lot <laughs> more smoothly um, in terms of they don't have activity on L1. It's their whole focus is basically to export TIA and get it used in all, all these different rollups, right? Um, and they're and they're building that narrative, and it's very you know coherent, and everybody is kind of aligned on that. In the same way that Solana, everybody is very aligned on Solana being the base layer of activity, right? And I do think you find Ethereum is somewhere in between there, right? Where they're looking at like, um, you know, the money camp is saying, uh, okay, this is kind of where the roadmap is going. We're pushing this activity out. This is you know. We need to export this this asset, right? And the protocols that are there are still saying like, wait, no, we're we're, we're still here. Can we like optimize the protocol a little bit more for applications? Um, so I do think there's a tension there. And then, yeah, we can talk about like, okay, uh, if the goal of Ethereum is to export this asset to be the base money, you know, in, in all these other activity hubs, like that in itself is going to be, you know, a wrapped version of Ethereum. Um, what are the, the marginal risks of, I guess, that being a, you know, a, a liquid staking derivative that is then bridged versus that being something that is, you know, you're only dealing with like the risk and trust of, of the bridge. Um, and if it's an enshrined bridge, usually it's not that bad. Yeah. The enshrining it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is where something like uh the liquid staking module ma makes makes an enormous amount of sense as a way for the protocol to have greater insight and potential regulation around what's going on with liquid staking tokens it, it you know ethereum here it's it's just so funny it's like first of all also to defend ethereum i mean ethereum is like pioneering all of this stuff you know they did uh and there are these weird second and third order consequences that end up coming down like the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. We've talked about this ad nauseum on the show, that gap in between when people could stake and when they could ultimately take it out was what led liquid staking protocols like Lido to be so successful. There was such a gap in UX that yeah. being able to trade in and out, I mean, liquid staking was the only thing that really ended up making sense within that context. And I, I think it's, I don't know. I, I don't have a great answer here. I still think Ethereum is in, in probably the most enviable position to be in just by virtue of the fact that more people do view it as as a form of money that you'd like to hold than almost anything else outside of Bitcoin. And they do have an extremely strong penetration of uh, Steeth. And I think that's, I guess where I want to drive towards here is I think that's inevitable. I, I think it's inevitable. Even if you just listen to Again, you can look towards TradFi as an analog, and there's a lot of things that you should ignore about TradFi, but there are some things that you should not ignore. And I think the thing that you should not ignore about TradFi is this: people want yield. You know, when, glo when large global pools of capital do not hold their money in the underlying asset, they hold their they hold their money in thing, uh, something that can generate yield. And what I think you could say is. Look, if your economic system favors the underlying as opposed to the yield generating thing, that's more beneficial for everyone. But I just think you're never going to get people over this mental hurdle of I'm just it's the greater fools thing. I'm only holding this thing because I think someone else is going to buy it from me for less. And I, instead, if I can model this yield, you know, be it a dividend or, uh, you know, a coupon or whatever, it, people are just so much more comfortable with that. and. And and that is, I don't know, I, I sort of view this as inevitable and it's coming for all, all blockchain, all crypto assets, actually. And it probably is a bit of a cap on, it's probably a little bit of a ceiling on Bitcoin. Mm. Like, there, like there is a reason why an extremely low percentage of institutional money holds gold. You hear gold bugs bemoan this all the time. It's like the bane of their existence. Like no one owns the gold yet. The opportunity is still so big. It's like, well, they've had a long time. They've had 5,000 years if they wanted it. <laughs> you know? They've had 5,000 years to buy this stuff. Like clearly they don't actually want it that much. And the reason why is this mental hurdle about yield, in my opinion, at least. So Productive assets, yeah. Productive assets. I agree. I mean, I would maybe if I had to push back on any of that, like inevitability, it's just that the risk profiles are not, you know, 
apples to apples between again like treasuries and cash versus you know staking ETH versus not. But yeah. I think those things I think those things do get worked out over time. Um, and yeah, I, 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 again maybe just to look at Celestia like they can implement a liquid staking module which regulates you know LSTs um, and that's like another sort of second mover advantage that they have um, just by not having to go through this large migration and and not having you know, and actually going with delegated proof of stake um, and so yeah I, I do think that it's a combination of can you regulate the growth of LSTs on Ethereum by targeting a, 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 a you know a more I would say opinionated like staking cap, right? Or like a staking target. Um, or do you need to just kind of uh, accept the inevitability of, of LSTs and people wanting to to stake and uh, especially with all these new ways to get yield that have nothing to do with issuance, right? And then say, okay, should we look at something like, you know, a, a bigger overhaul of, of the staking architecture beyond just the issuance curve and, and thinking about things like, you know, building native delegation into the protocol, being making the protocol at least aware of, you know, some of the, the you know, different types of, of staking, right, that is going on um, and the risks that that could potentially impose. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good point. My own opinion is that it's inevitable, but I, I understand that that's an unpopular opinion. And there but no, are I think I think that's that's that. Okay, then it's like okay, if it's inevitable, what should we do about that to to maybe avoid some of these like negative consequences that we see as as pretty likely, right? If we do, if we just sit here and 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 do nothing, um, like you know, Lido can probably have a very large influence over the you know the how old stake is delegated across the validator set, right? Um, not that they're not doing everything in their power to kind of, you know, basically get off of that sort of that narrative, right? Um, I actually think they've done a good job. They've probably, Ethereum has probably wound up with a validator set that's slightly more, depending on whatever your definition of decentralized is, that Lido has, it's been a forcing function of distribution. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. But what, you know, which control point basically are you going to kind of target if, if you're in the shoes of, you know, somebody that is trying to figure out the future roadmap of Ethereum? You know, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good question. And I, I'm not sure that I have a coherent, uh, coherent answer yet, but I think, I think it begins with, you know, the community, this is a really important question i think for the community and the various sets of ethereum stakeholders that exist you know people people think that you know the ethereum foundation's like the all seeing eye and they're in control that's obviously not the case it's a diverse they're they're diverse even within the organization and pretty distributed um but certainly there are folks there that have um some influence there are you know different uh, the the client teams that exist the apps you know ultimately we're going to need to come to um consensus on this and I, I think what makes it okay, let's ignore the idea of yield and being a productive asset. I think if you were to just look at, okay, Ethereum, the protocol and ETH, the asset are related, but, you know, increasingly diverging. And the idea is to export ETH as, as an asset and a money to other chains, then you, you kind of have to accept the idea that canonical ETH as it exists on ETH main chain is going to not be the majority. And instead, what you're going to have is you're going to have mostly wrapped versions with varying sets of trade-offs and security assumptions. So, uh, you know, maybe like the worst version of that would be your canonical mint and lock bridge where, you know, you're just locked, you know, your ETH is locked in a smart contract on, on main chain, and then you get some sort of obligation from the bridge. And that has historically proven to be a honeypot for risk, but maybe it's much better if you have ETH that gets bridged up, you know, into Arbitrum or Optimism. That's a, that's a better version. So I don't know. I, I, I this is where I actually have a lot of empathy for the Ethereum alignment people, because even though it makes me personally chafe a little bit sometimes, I'm like, yeah, you don't really have a mechanism here to get people to do what's in their long-term best interest. And I think 
These are all really well-intended people who want to see users that don't understand all these trade-offs or are maybe a little bit short-sighted like every human can be from time to time, not make bad decisions. So yeah, I can see why we've landed on alignment as as kind of a, a way to do that because I don't, I'm not sure if I've got a better solution. Yeah, sure. no, and and the, the solutions are always like, okay, we can, let's build things into the protocol that mitigate some of these risks. But I think the challenge with Ethereum is there is such a like plurality of visions of what Ethereum should care about and how to prioritize things, even not just money, you know, and exporting to other, you know, activity layers versus L1. It's like, okay, should we care about, should we try to compete on DA or not? You know, and, and if we are, if we do care about competing on DA, then then what should we be, you know, prioritizing versus are we really trying to compete more on the money side? If so, what should we be prioritizing? Maybe something that's more around like, you know, a supply side economic, like staking overhaul, right? Um, versus activity on L1 and you know, raising the gas limits and, and things like that. Um, so I do think that a lot of this is, that's why Ethereum is beautiful. It's the only blockchain, the only ecosystem that actually, you know, supports all of this, this kind of diverse, you know, set of views and, and, and opinions on what to do. Um, whereas again, maybe I just contrast that to like Celestia and Solana, which are, you know, far more, you know, cohesive and kind of like the community's vision and priorities, uh, it obviously on opposite ends of the spectrum and what they're trying to do. But yeah, I do think that that's why, you know, things get, uh, pretty, pretty spicy from time to time, especially the fact that, you know, the EF, like and the core developers are a separate class, I would say, of of you know developers than the application developers and maybe even the roll up developers, uh, and and I guess what they care about and what they're thinking about on day to day. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the. Here's a question that I have for you. We were talking about this a little bit, but I'll I'll be particularly interested to see what penetration of liquid staking in Celestia ultimately ends up looking like and where that shakes out because again tale of two cities sort of thing or a sliding doors where in ethereum a historically lower stake rate although that's clearly creeping up very high penetration of liquid staking for a bunch of reasons no native delegation you had that ux um you know the mer you know, pre-merge uh, problem for stakers in the beginning and then there's the moneyness of eth the, and a robust DeFi ecosystem so all these things and then for something like Solana or Cosmos, you have very high stake rate, very low penetration of liquid staking. So for Tia, it'll be really interesting to see where that ultimately ends up shaking out. I think Tia's, Celestia has the benefit of having learned the lessons, you know, shall we say, of, of these three major ecosystems. They'll have more information than anyone else did at the time. Uh, that they were that they were sort of making these decisions for themselves. I'll just be really interested to see where it ultimately ends up. Me too. And I, I'd actually push that even further to say I'd, I'm very interested to see where LSTs on ETH actually, uh, how they evolve in a roll-up centric world, right? Because I, I think part of the challenge with LSTs in a roll-up centric ecosystem is is bridging and, and fungibility, right? Um, it, even if it's the same LST, if it's, you know, coming from one route it, to, you know, a roll-up, let's say it's coming from like osmosis to a roll-up and, you know, another one is coming from, let's say another roll-up to this roll-up, those two are not going to be fungible. Um, and with in, something like- Miles, explain why that is for people. Oh, it's just, it's just basically whether it's a, a bridging route or an IBC route, um, you know, it's- Basically, what the what is minted on the other side is specific to the collateral that's locked on, you know, the the source chain of where it's coming from. So, mm -hmm. the derivative minted of say like Steeth coming from you know Arbitrum to Optimism that's been locked on say like the Arbitrum side um, versus uh, Steeth coming from Starknet to Optimism, which you know you need to basically like have these. Uh, canonical bridging routes to make sure that okay i went from like eth to stark net with my steeth right and i want to go to arbitrum uh, or optimism in this example i need 
if you're Arbitrum, you want every, every like all the Steeth coming in to go first back down to Ethereum and then come up the same route, right? And so it does actually add, I think, I think of another part of like, you know, LST adoption, um, why it's so high in market penetration is on, um, on Ethereum is also because there's, you know, it, it, you don't deal with any of these fungibility issues. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think it's um, very interesting to see how this plays out because I would argue Tia is one of the only assets that that really has like a lot of the qualities of ETH in terms of, you know, moneyness and kind of that shared base layer asset that everybody has to use and hold for some reason versus having, you know, it's a Cosmos chain that has already has like a 59% or 50%, you know, staking ratio that's all native staked. Um, and we'll, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll basically see it. I think a lot of it also depends on, you know, the rollups themselves and how much they want to lean into this as a way to uh, attract uh, liquidity on their platform. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the other, t the other tension here that is unclear at least in my mind, in terms of how this all plays out. And maybe you've got a much better, I mean, I know we agree on some parts of this and some parts less, but in a world where you have a couple dominant, let's just say the TIA or ETH sent, uh, you know, sort of viewpoint ends up playing out here. And there are a couple of monies that get used on all of these blockchains. What are we going to do with all these other tokens? <laughs> like, what are we going to do with that? I mean, even in even in the scenario of ETH rollups, where you've got why like can't ETH. they just why can't they just make revenue? You know, like <laughs> why can't they just earn revenue in those base layer tokens from usage of their platforms? And once they you know have made enough revenue that like there's no higher ROI you know growth investment other than paying capital back to users, they can just you know do that kind of sounds like an equity but um I, I do think that like that's fine you know not every token needs to be like <laughs> needs to be money obviously right of course but so you're talking about the other l1s mainly like no 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 i was talking about okay. the layer twos and even the yeah, shared yeah, sequencer sure. let's assume that these shared sequencers are yeah. going to launch tokens as well yeah as well and you know there, there's a couple of different you know a lot of this is path dependence of how regulation frankly ends up playing out. So let's just let's just let's just say there's a world where these things are allowed to be valued based on their cash flows. Then they start to look pretty equity like. Um, and one of the the if you were the if you operated one of these protocols today, you'd say, Hey, I get that this is the first principles way that this should operate, but the only way that crypto protocols tend to get users is through launching a token. And that's like bootstrap, uh, you know, solving the cold start problem. I know you're going to push back on me, but a lot of no, 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 no. I, I yeah, I agree. I agree. No, I'd be like, look, I, I get it, I get it, but I also have to do this if I want to compete because my competitors are going to do it. So then, if we can assume in that world that uh, they're not going to be allowed to distribute cash flows back or even imply that because they shouldn't even be doing that just from a business standpoint at this point in their life cycle anyway, then they need some other way for for you to, to accrue value to the token. Here's one way that you could do that. Let's imagine this sort of chain abstracted multi-chain world where you've got a couple of different layers, right? This is where, let's just say there's kind of an area where maybe this is a wallet or this is what Near is trying to do with their blockchain operating system. Some kind of front end where a transaction is originated. And let's assume that the destination, the state that you're trying to impact is on another chain. Um. And uh, shout out to Sam Hart, by the way, for actually, I just got off a long call with him earlier today. Um, but, you know, basically the idea would be there's a couple of things that need to happen. There's kind of a simulation that needs to get run about what is the optimal route. And when I say that was exactly what you were describing, which is not all routes are created equal. There's costs, there's speed, there are security assumptions based on the route that you take. Then there's this sort of transport layer. And then there's ultimately the chain where you want to impact things. In a kind of shitty version of how this could play out you know you could imagine each hop being token gated and in order to take that version you know in order to take that route you, you would have to, you'd have to essentially swap into that token and then swap back out I, I again there's a lot of reasons for that to that we could all say that's not efficient but i could see that playing out as as an end state
why wouldn't have bridges done that already then right i i don't know <laughs> i i just i if if it can be that fluid and there's liquidity venues and it's all abstracted away then 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 sure uh maybe i agree um but i do think the whole the the less denominations there are the more efficient these systems run in general it's less mm -hmm. friction you could honestly view those like tokens as like crypto native intermediaries that just add you know they are no, That's annoying, exactly what annoying are. rent seeking checkpoints and i think they can be rent seeking but not necessarily as annoying with you know making you kind of like deal with these these token complexity issues um so maybe i'll say this like I know we, do, we go back and forth on this a lot, but there are cases where like it really does make sense to lean into your token as money because that's going to create the best, biggest version of both your service and like the ecosystem that depends on you. And I'll go back to Celestia, right? You're, I think it was Dan on your team did a great report being like yeah. uh, showing God the the forbidden R word revenue right of like of Celestia and saying okay it's like seventy six bucks a day if we like hundred thousand x this then you know maybe it's this but the whole point again is to like just keep scaling the band you know the the, the, the amount of like data right so it's never actually going to be the the revenue driver so that said you know exporting Tia and leaning into this like you know Tia's modular money meme. Um, and what that actually means is getting Tia adopted on all these rollups. I actually do think like is is a you know rising tides you know lifts all boats for the ecosystem. Number one, I think it makes as like to my point on there like routing and things like shared sequencers far more efficient because we're looking at one denomination of like a very liquid asset. And then it you get like the you know once you kind of hit exit velocity on on the size and of market cap and and uh, you know asset meme ability, then you can start exporting your security and and restaked assets and like what Zachy was saying, I think we both pretty much expect and are already seeing like you know the top um, at least you know at least at this point ETH, Bitcoin, Solana, and Tia all have projects that are either actively working on restaking or you know thinking about it right um so then that sense like that makes the totally makes sense to have you know give the, that should be like the point of your token but yeah I, I just think if you're like a you know a transport layer i mean look at ibc it's not great that we really just rely on like relayer subsidies instead of actually enforcing some sort of you know fee there that might be sustainable um but you know, that, so there, there's absolutely no rent seeking, and then with other bridges, I think you're just, you know, for the most part, taking taking a fee on whatever the the asset you're trying to send from one place to the other is. Um, so yeah, sorry, I was rambling there for a while, but Miles, that makes almost too much sense in the way that it, that it w and there it probably will end up playing out something something very similar to that, but I just. With that pre again, I just there's this like very complicated though, and look, this could be solved, but you know, will it even be solved? Because if you were to just say as, as soon as you say, as soon as you say that these tokens get valued based on their cash flows, then kind of has to become a security at that standpoint. And even taking my crypto hat off for a second, it's like, what rationale would I if, if this is just if this is just an equity? Why can we distribute, unless we as a society want to say, which, which I would be down to have this conversation. The frictions around issuing equity are far too high. I think that is the case. And as an issuer of startup equity, I think there are pros and cons to, I think there are pros and cons to having your equity, which is startup equity, wildly volatile, be liquid. In a lot of cases, it doesn't make sense. There are a lot of negatives that come come across to it, but I think I think the the pros outweigh the cons in general. And yeah. I would be a proponent of generally maybe that's maybe that would be a good end state for tokens or a good end impact for tokens is that they just make everyone see that the way that we issue and think about equity sure. needs to get an upgrade. I'd prefer I'd prefer that over bending over backwards and forgetting and trying to create, you know, new best practices or like new principles just to avoid this maybe transitory like, you know, issue of not being able to admit that it has 
properties of a security. Um, and again, that doesn't apply to all all tokens. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it's like, okay, either this is a better way to issue equity or some version of it, or, you know, maybe you hold off on it. Um, you know, as we're seeing with Eigenlayer now, like big part of, you know, the reason the these AVSs will have tokens is, is because it is a cheaper way to pay for security, right? They do have to go probably fundraise for these tokens to have any value. Um, and, but typically when you fundraise, you're also able to mint a lot of the token, right? Um, it's not one-to-one -one equity dollars in to tokens out. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that this is, it's helpful for bootstrapping costs, um, you know, and, and eventually it kind of, depending on the project, it could have potentially have non, you know, security like properties, but it's, I wouldn't like make that the focus of your, of your, of your mission, right. Versus like just the product itself. I agree. I guess the only pushback that I would have to you, and it's not even real pushback, it's just how long is that going to take for us to come to that? I mean, that take coming to that realization could take a decade. And if you're an entrepreneur and you want to do something now, this is where the element of path dependence, I think, comes into comes into play. And another another, you know, another aspect of this as well is we've taken whether we know it or not an enormous amount of we really copied a lot of bitcoin's architecture and when i say architecture i mean the amount of decentralization that's required the, the sort of um i don't know the ethos of the community and the construction of the protocol based on the intended use case and broadly applied that to all of crypto and i do think that in bitcoin's case the token is the export I mean, that is, it's like the property of the block space aligns very neatly with the, the token Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the product. It is, exp it is money. And we, and it's, ba I mean, the token, the tokenomics of the protocol are based on the price of Bitcoin going up. And that is what the protocol is trying to do. So, yeah, I think we've taken a lot of that and applied it to completely different structures, which look far more equity. Like the question is just, how long is it going to take for everyone to come to this collective realization and for that to get, you know, translated into legislation that makes sense? I don't know how long that's going to take. Yeah, it's funny because I was going to actually say like, actually, you know, I don't feel like most, uh, you know, application tokens right now are really like make, like they're, they're trying to make revenue, protocol revenue is good. People like that, right? So they like it even better when it's paid out as, you know, dividends right the real yield mean um but i would say yeah if you were to say like pick one characteristic where we've just not thought from first principles whatsoever and we've slapped something you know a concept from bitcoin you know over to to the way we launch these tokens um it is probably that fixed supply you know it's just like that, oh it, that's like the least you know at, at nobody's gonna be like you know at the sec looking at a token but like well it does have fixed supply so yeah <laughs> um that's not very equity like yeah sure no it makes revenue and pays dividends out but it has fixed supply and, and they haven't minted anymore uh you know um good like, on them doesn't really move the needle in that conversation but yet we're stuck to it and for whatever reason it's like just it's lower on the priority list of uh i would love to see that i you know what i think with a high quality enough team all it would take is for one blue chip protocol to break that mold. And I think the industry would change overnight because, you know, this idea we, we are so, and by the way, this is, I, I do think, you know, you talked about Solana and Celestia. I think they're, I don't know how fair this is to draw. And I now under, I understand that I don't, a lot of this, I really think you can trace back to the original civil war of crypto, which is the block size wars of the small blockers versus the big blockers, this idea of scarcity or abundance. And I do the way that at least I see it is you've got Ethereum and Bitcoin on the scarcity side of things, which is a good, which is a totally fine and a good place to be on. But I think that maybe it's unpopular to say, but the big blockers had a lot of points. They had a lot of good points. These weren't evil people. There was a totally rational argument on the other side of this that ended up losing in the Bitcoin protocol. But most protocols that have played out since then are more in line with the big block than the small block vision. Like it, mostly they are. 
And, and this idea of abundance versus scarcity, I think is going to come more into the fore. And I, I would love to see more demand side arguments for this industry as opposed to everything being about limiting the supply, limiting the supply, make some shit that's useful. Yeah. <laughs> People will want it, you know? Right. And maybe just to kind of, it's funny. Now we're seeing, um, I think what a, a lot of the big blockers back in the day actually would have wanted, but just in a different form, going back to, you know, what we we're talking about with now we have rollups right on, on top of Bitcoin. Um, and we have Babylon that is able to, you know, export the, 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 I guess the, the security of Bitcoin. And those two things, you know, may not have happened um, if Bitcoin was, was not still so pristine and dumb, like at the base layer. Um, or at least like the security exporting. Um, I think, you know, that's a that's a perfect case where it's saying, okay, here are the choices we made for the, you know, the objective we wanted, which was digital gold, like pristine, pristine, you know, asset. And uh, what can we do with that without breaking that original value prop? Um, and I think Babylon is getting towards it. With the ZK rollups, I, yeah, it, I'll be, I'm very interested to hear like what, apart from community and all of this like untapped liquidity in, you know, in on Bitcoin, right? Is there, is that like the crux of the value prop and the, and the differentiator of why, you know, folks are building on Bitcoin uh, versus something that's like, you know, maybe optimized to, to host rollups like Celestia or, or even Ethereum for that example? That is such a good question. I don't know. I, I have historically not been a huge champion of this. This was a narrative a couple of years ago, DeFi on Bitcoin. And people have been talking about things like drive chain since 2016, maybe even before that, probably before that. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm with you, Miles. I don't really know. I'm, I'd be in the camp where it's like, why are you building this on Ethereum? Doesn't that make, I mean, make more here's my, the steel man argument is that, um, the best tech doesn't always win. It's, it's, it's largely like we're seeing right now with even like something like blast, like a liquidity game. Right. And so even if it's not necessarily suited and you're bending over backwards, basically to make this like, you know, a roll up work on Bitcoin, I, the wills like, like you can't like just look, uh, you can't, you can't discredit like the, the value of, or at least the promise of, you know, trillion dollars worth of, of capital sitting there that hypothetically, if you were to unlock, you know, 1% of it's a, a massive roll up, right? Okay, Miles. So I had that exact, by the way, going into this year, my highest conviction, most out of the money sort of bet is Bitcoin NFTs for exactly the reason that you just described, because people want to do stuff with their assets. And once they lost BlockFi and Bitcoin, it's the largest pool of crypto native capital. There's no such thing. You don't get yield unless you want to kind of do uh, the stacks thing. So uh, this was my thesis. Like people will probably buy NFTs with that. So, um, but I, but let me, let me ask you this, Miles. Do you think in, in one of the big differences between the community of Ethereum and Bitcoin and now every other blockchain and Bitcoin is there's a general acceptance of tokens, tokens being built on that leverage the Ethereum Celestia Solana platform. Bitcoin has historically resisted that quite a bit. And I think it's hindered more so even than the performance issues of 10-minute blockchain times, et cetera. It is the community that will push back and say, you're shitcoining. Munib, Munib of Stacks might have more patience than any human in this entire industry. Uh, I, I honestly think he does. Yeah, I think that's generally my, um, my skepticism is, uh, I would say, like, to my previous point, actually less around the viability of the tech to host these products and more around like uh, maybe uh, call it like product community, not having product community fit. Um, like the user preference, the, yeah, the, the user preferences and like um, demand drivers for, for why folks are on Bitcoin in the first place, I think uh, are very, very different, right? Um, that said, the promise of... <laughs> just 1% of converting 1% of those folks, you know, um, but we'll see, man. We'll see. I, I think there's, it's, it's, there's changes afoot over there. Um, and yeah, I think we should, we should probably do an episode at some point. I love Bitcoin. I like Bitcoin is what, <laughs> you know, that was the original, you know, that was the light bulb moment for most people, including me in this space. It, it is still, I think the architecture is beautiful. 
I love it. I've always liked it. I have chafed a little bit in recent years with what I think are very non-scientific, not particularly well-run reasoned arguments that are coming out of that community that feel more religious than anything else. But, you know, one of the personal frustrations for me in that is, you know, Blockware has been around for six years. We've been talking about Bitcoin for six years. And some of the people that are the loudest over there now, I knew six years ago, and they wouldn't say a word publicly about Bitcoin. And it's like, oh, well, now you are. And like, I'm not Bitcoin enough for you because I also like Ethereum and Celestia and Solana. It's a actually a personal frustration for me. But um, yeah, so anyway, um, we, can, we can end it there. I think this was hopefully, guys, you know, Miles and I just at this was it was a slow news week. We thought we'd just get on and rip about something that was hopefully relevant for folks and we're never trying to you know we're always just trying to explore these ideas and i I think this this next 10 years of crypto is going to be even more interesting than the preceding 10 years and it's going to play out in non-obvious ways so hopefully these episodes just make you guys think a little bit is all so i think that's the point yep unscripted unfiltered some of it was probably pretty dumb without regret saying but uh always a blast man um, yeah, always a blast. And uh, and a shout out to everyone out there who's pushing the frontier. There are no answers in this space. A lot of this stuff is totally new. So shout out to shout out to everyone that's pushing that frontier. So, all right, Miles, this is a lot of fun. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, man. See ya. Hey, everyone. Mike here. If you're a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring assets across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That is why we're incredibly excited to have teamed up with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom Bell Curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Take you get your free NFT.